0: Well, church, we're going to continue today in uh, what's really a, a two part message that we began last Sunday as we kind of centering around verse 1 of chapter 4, this, uh, this call upon the church to stand firm in the midst of troubled times. We, we are not the first generation uh, uh, to experience difficult days, it was the difficult days in the early church here in Philippi. And we continue to see over the last couple thousand years, uh, as the effects of sin and death continue to infect our world, we have things like pandemics and racial riots and all kinds of different things that we are dealing with today. And so we want to continue today talking about how do we, as the people of God, stand firm in troubled times. And and I brought to us last week this, this thought that the call of God upon us is... It is not to march forward with picket signs and guns blazing, but nor is it to sh- for us to shrink back in fear and anxiety that our call as the people of God is to stand firm and to demonstrate to a world that is shaking to its very core that there is a firm foundation on which we can stand, and His name is Jesus Christ. And so as we continue talking about this today, uh, last week we really focused a lot on uh, what I would call external troubles for the church. uh, Enemies from outside the church and things outside in the culture uh, that that are continuing to be a threat to the church of Jesus Christ. But today we're going to turn our gaze, as Paul does in the first part of chapter 4 here, to what I would consider to be some internal struggles in the church. The church has always had enemies out there, but there's also always been trouble in here. Because the reality is, just like in every marriage, I always talk with uh, couples that I marry about the fact that when sinners come together in a home, there's going to be trouble. Those couples that talk about, well, we never argue, well, it may be because you never communicate, Or one party is just letting the other one have their way all the time. But the reality is when sinners come together in the home, in the church, and in any context, there's going to be trouble. And that's what Paul looks at here in the first part of chapter 4 as he's beginning to draw this letter to a close. And so... I want us to think for a couple of minutes here as we begin into the message today about some of the divisive issues of our day. We're going to see some, there were some divisive issues in the church at Philippi, but what are some of the divisive issues of our day that would threaten to cause division within the church? So I'm going to stir the waters a little bit here as we get started today. What are some of the divisive issues that threaten us today? A few questions. So which is a bigger threat, COVID-19 or our failing economy? You want to get some arguments stirred up today? Just throw that one out in the mix. See how that goes. Secondly, who should we vote for in this year's election? Or maybe should we vote in this year's election? Should schools be reopening next month? Man, you want to get things started right here in our own community. There you go. Bring that up. What's happening with the schools? A few more. How should we respond to the social justice issues that are making such big headlines in the pursuit of, of racial reconciliation? That is a hot topic among pastors right now, and there's a variety of views on this issue here in our own state, has our governor overstepped his bounds? (laughs) Thank you, sister. Moving on. Should we enforce the wearing of face masks? Something as simple as a face mask has become a defining issue in our culture right now. As Matt and I were sitting in Burger King, and we did wear our masks in and, and ordered our food and sat down and, and then took our masks off. There was a gentleman. well He wasn't so gentle. Came in without a face mask, was refused service, and he let forth some four-letter words that I won't repeat this morning. And there was this altercation over a mask just visibly displayed there in that moment. And I, I got to thinking about this thing, this the simplicity of a mask and yet the complexity that has caused such division. As we think about these issues, I want us to begin to think today about how do we as the people of God respond differently than the craziness that we're seeing in our culture. That altercation between that man and, and, the, and the worker there in Burger King that got so ugly. How do we as the people of God respond differently than what we're seeing over and over again in our culture? Because the reality is we've got to set a different standard. We've got to show the world how to live at peace in troubled times and how to stand firm and not be shaken in the midst of difficult days. And so let me lay forward for us just a few thoughts this morning from the text that Grant read for us. In order for us to stand firm in troubled times, I want to show you three more things that I believe we must do. These are not things that we might do or things that we could do. These are things that we must do because they're commands given in the Word of God for God's people in the midst of troubled times. I showed you three last week. I want to show you three more this week. First of all, in the midst of troubled times, we must reconcile with one another in the Lord. Reconciliation is so core to our understanding of the Christian faith. First of all, that God, through Jesus Christ, has reconciled us to himself. That's at the very core of the gospel. And we have been called, as Paul uh, writes to the Corinthians, to be ministers or ambassadors of reconciliation to a lost and dying world. And so we have to model what reconciliation looks like based upon the gospel. But we have these two ladies that are brought up here. This is the only time we find them mentioned, but in Philippians 4-2, their dispute makes eternal headlines in the word of God. Now, I want you to think about the context that Euodia and Syntyche are in here for a moment, As we remind ourselves, as Grant said, that this list is a letter that was written by Paul to the church at Philippi. And when they received this letter, the custom of that day was that the, the pastor would stand before the congregation and would read out loud the letter that he had received from the Apostle Paul. And then oftentimes they would pass that letter to other churches in their area and it would be read there as well. Now imagine being Euodia and Syntyche, As the pastor stands to read this letter from the Apostle Paul and you're moving through the through those first three chapters and re- so much encouragement so much about joy and rejoicing in the Lord and our fellowship and the gospel and then he comes to chapter 4 verse 1 and there's this call to stand firm in the Lord and there's so many amens that are resounding in the room and then chapter 4 verse 2 he says and I entreat you Odia and Syntyche to agree with one another put yourself in those ladies position for just a moment moment you feel about this big they just got called out and it it almost in our culture that almost seems to have an element of rudeness to it what right does he have to call out these ladies and yet what was happening between them was causing such division in the body of christ I want you to notice something, what he calls them to there in verse 2. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now what does he mean by that? What does it mean to agree in the Lord? Well, first of all, I want to say this. Our agreement in the Lord doesn't require or imply or mean complete agreement on every issue. Let, let, me, let me say that very clearly again for us, because we're living in a day in which people are being grouped by various things, by their skin color, their socioeconomic class, their educational attainment, their political views. They're, we're being grouped into particular groupings, and we're, then we're being labeled as, well, all the people in this group believe this. And that's even happening with church-going people. All the folks that go to Southern Baptist churches believe this way and vote this way and think this way about the issues of the day. And the reality is it's not true, but that's the way our culture is more and more defining the day in which we live. We're being grouped and defined, and we're being told that we ought to all think the same way on these issues. But I want to say to us, church, agreeing in the Lord doesn't mean agreeing on all the issues. We can have differences of opinion and still worship the same Christ. Now, there is a foundational agreement. Again, that's why it's in the Lord and in His gospel. There are some foundational things upon which we must agree in order to gather together to worship the risen Christ. But there are a variety of other things, things that we would call secondary or even tertiary issues that that we need not agree upon in order to worship Christ together. And we need to be reminded of that because there are so many issues right now that would threaten the unity of the body of Christ. And so what were Euodia and Syntyche fighting about? Well, I'm kind of thankful that the Apostle Paul doesn't tell us He doesn't say what their agreement was. And I think one of the reasons why he doesn't define their disagreement is so that we might apply this passage to whatever it is that we might disagree upon. So let's kind of bring it into a little bit of modern-day speculation based on some of the issues that, that we talked about a little bit ago. Let's just kind of imagine for a moment what Euodia and Syntyche might have gotten at odds with one another about in light of recent events. Perhaps Euodia believed that all the mess that's going on right now is Obama's fault. And anyone who would, who would not vote for Trump must not love Jesus very much. While Syntyche, on the other hand, believes that all this mess that we're seeing is Trump's fault. And anyone who would vote for him must not love Trump. Jesus very much. If you don't think those two opinions occur side by side in the church today, you need to open your eyes. Perhaps Euodia considers the social justice movement and the search for racial reconciliation to be the primary issue of the day and the thing that all Christians ought to be most concerned about while Syntyche believes that it's really just a smokescreen that would seek to distract us from our real fight on the issue of abortion. Do you see the dividing lines? Perhaps Euodia believes that everyone should be wearing face masks right now, and Syntyche believes that no one should be forced to do such a silly thing. We don't know what their issue was, but we know what our issues are, don't we? And the call of God on the church in this day is no different than the call of God on the church 2,000 years ago. J. Motyer said, To agree on the gospel is the most fundamental form of unity it involves a unity of mind and heart as to the doctrine and personal experience of salvation. To agree on what the gospel demands in its proclamation to the world is to cement unity by common action. And so we can disagree on face masks and whether schools should be opening next month and who we're going to vote for in November and the most important issues of the day. We can disagree on many of these things, but there are some foundational things on which we must find unity and agreement and we must maintain those things and we must continue to love one another and bear with one another in the midst of a day in which division Is perhaps at an all-time high, at least in my lifetime. I've never seen more division in our country, in our community, and even the threat of division right here in our church. We need to be taking heed of the warning that the Scriptures would give us. And so he calls out Euodia and Syntyche. In our modern context, that seems rude, out out of bounds, What right does he have to call these ladies out? Isn't that their own business if they're in disagreement? But the reality is this church, unity in the church is the church's business. This is a call to y'all, not just to you. This is for all of us to understand. So he lays this out in front of the whole church because what he's saying is what's happening between these two ladies is a threat to the gospel unity of the church at Philippi. And it's the gospel unity of the church at Philippi that's going to enable them to reach the lost in the city of Philippi. It's their love for one another that's going to demonstrate that they are disciples of Christ. Isn't that what Jesus said? It's their love for one another, and their love was being threatened by this division. And perhaps there were even groups forming, those who believed that Euodia was in the right, and those who believed that Syntyche was in the right. And Paul doesn't take sides. He entreats them both in the same way. And he calls upon this one, he calls the loyal yoke fellow. I you think about that term for a moment. What is a yoke fellow? It would be one who was given the task of, of putting two oxen together under a yoke in order that they might plow a field together. It's one who was, call, who was actually given this task of unity. We don't know whether he was calling upon the pastor at Philippi or, or who this particular individual was. And I think, again, he leaves it vague. He doesn't name this person in order that we might stand in his place. So here's our temptation. We see two folks at odds in the church context. And I know that never happens here, but if it did, We see two folks at odds in the church context and we are so tempted to step back and go, well, that's not my business. And I want to say to us, church, it is our business. It is our business when divisions in the body are becoming threats to the gospel. And that's what Paul's saying here. The division between these two ladies was infecting the church with a divisive spirit. And he calls upon this loyal yoke fellow and others in the congregation to help these two women come to an agreement. And by the way, again, remember, agreement doesn't mean that we're going to think the same thing about all the issues. But agreement means that we're going to look at all the issues through the lens of the gospel and recognize that which is primary and that which is secondary. Secondary. And we're not going to allow that which is secondary to trump that which is primary. And the gospel is primary. It's more important than masks. It's more important than your political views. It's more important than any of the things that would divide us. And doesn't our culture so desperately need to see believers being able to love one another in spite of our differences? How easy is it to love someone who agrees with you on everything? But the call to love is to just, is to love those who don't agree with you on every matter. Colossians 3 We see this call again and again in the Scriptures. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Remember who you are, holy and beloved, chosen by God. So then put on compassionate hearts and kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. That's one of the most important phrases for the day in which we live, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And we love to use phrases like that as a beating stick. Well, you know you have to forgive me because the Bible commands you to do so. But it's so much deeper than that. It's out of the recognition that I have been forgiven much that I then in turn turn to the brother or sister with whom I'm at odds and I recognize that their sin against me is nowhere near as grand as the sin that I've committed against God. And if the sin that I've committed against God could be wiped out by the blood of Jesus, then how can I then continue to hold on to that which would divide me from my brother or from my sister? Ephesians 4, the same call to unity that we would make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is no small thing, church. This is huge. This is worth our living and even our dying. So we are called to reconcile with one another in the Lord. Secondly, we are called to rejoice with one another in the Lord. And man, we are so quick at times to individualize verses like this. And one of the first verses I can remember learning as a child in Sunday school was, was rejoice. I say it again, rejoice. That was the abbreviated version that they taught us. And, and, and I remember that kind of put, being put forward in a more individualistic kind of way that we as individuals are called rejoicing. But again, this is a call to y'all. To all of us, to rejoice together in the Lord. And what a remedy that is for the day of grumbling and dissatisfaction in which we live. We ought to be a people of great rejoicing, especially in troubled days. Why? Because we know this world is not our home Our lives are not wrapped up in this present existence as we talked about last week. We have a a future-facing faith. We're looking forward to that which is to come. And and that causes us to be a people of continual rejoicing even in the most difficult of times. As Paul would write in Romans 5, we can even rejoice in our sufferings because we know that God is doing something amazing and immaculate in the midst of them. What's our reason for rejoicing Given for us there. Our reason for rejoicing is the reality of His presence. Rejoice in the Lord. Let your reasonableness be known to all. The Lord is at hand. There's some debate about what does Paul mean, the Lord is at hand? Is he talking about the nearness of our experience of the Lord's presence or is he talking about the coming of the Lord as the King of glory? Which one is he talking about? I think it's both. I think he's talking about rejoice because your Lord is near to you and also rejoice because your King is coming for you. That's the rejoicing that we ought to have as the people of God. And so Jesus, in his final promise before he ascended back into heaven, said, Behold, I am with you always. I'll never leave you or forsake you to the very ends of this age, of this church age, and then, and then it's not like He's going to leave us at the end of the age, then we will be with Him. I'm with you to the end of the age, and then you will come and be with me because I'm going to prepare a place for you. And that's the source of our rejoicing, reminding ourselves this world is not our home, but our Savior is with us. He is near us. This leads us to rejoicing. We also notice in the midst of this rejoicing that it is an attitude of gratitude that is an antidote to anxiety. Man, what an anxious day in which we live. And again, I'm not just talking about out there, folks. Well, let's just recognize that worry is a danger even in the church house today. We are not immune from worry. That's why Jesus commanded us in Matthew 6 not to worry. He talked about how we don't have anything to worry about because our God is watching over and providing for us. If He has clothed the the grasses of the field with such glory, why do we have to worry about what we're going to wear If he feeds the birds of the air, why don't we have to worry about what we're going to eat? Our lives need not be consumed with worry and anxiety. And when they are consumed with worry and anxiety, it belies the fact that there is an issue in our faith. If we're continuing to wrestle in such a way that it's drawing us away from the Lord, it's a very different thing if we're casting our cares upon the Lord. That's a very different picture. But if we're continuing to wrestle in such a way that it's drawing us away from the Lord, it's revealing to us that there's an issue in our faith that needs to be laid before our faithful Father. And so I would say to us today, if we're continuing to wrestle in such a way that it's hindering our faith in Christ, then come to Him all who are weary and heavy laden. Lay your burdens upon him. Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. And our response to that should simply be one of gratitude. This is the bent of the believing heart. A thankfulness before God. Are we not called and commanded to thankfulness again and again in the scriptures? And again, it's not just, well, you know you ought to be thankful. That helps, right? Right? No, no, it's the overflow of the reminder of what Christ has done for us. We're thankful because we know that what we have in Christ is so utterly glorious that nothing in this life can diminish its glory. And in fact, seen rightly, even the trials of our life will be reason to further exalt the glory of our good God and Savior. And so Paul calls the Thessalonian church, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. By the way, church, let me just say this. I think if we would make those three things our main things in this day, continual rejoicing and prayer and thanksgiving, this whole situation would be turned on its head. You say, seriously, Pastor? Yes, seriously. If we, as the people of God, would make this our mantra, this would be the the living out of our faith, continual rejoicing and prayer and thanksgiving. The world might think we're crazy, but they would recognize something in us and they would say, I want that. I don't want to be consumed by this anxiety anymore and this fear and this anger and all that's going on around me. I want what you have. This is the demonstration of the peace of God lived out in the people of God. May this be true of us. And finally this morning, we're called to reconcile with one another, to rejoice with one another in the Lord. And then in verses 8 and 9, to remind one another of the Lord. To remind one another of the Lord. So Paul says, here's some things I want you to think about, brothers and sisters. Be continually thinking about whatever is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable. If there's anything that's excellent or anything worthy of praise keep on thinking about these things that's the tense of the verb there and when he says think about these things keep on thinking about be consumed with these things and church i want to ask us what kinds of thoughts are consuming our days what's eating you up let's learn to think gospel thoughts Here's what I mean by that. I believe Paul is giving us a grid, a a paradigm, if you will, to begin to think about our thought life. So much happens in our thought life that we oftentimes don't really consider as we ought to. The battlefield of the mind is, is huge in the Christian life. Now the war has been won for those who belong to Christ. But we continue to battle. We battle worry and anxiety and anger and fear and all, all kinds of different battles that take place within the mind. But what Paul's doing here is he's saying, here's some weapons for winning that battle. Here's some weapons of war to begin to gauge your thoughts. And as he calls the Corinthian church to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. Here's the way that we can think gospel what does it look like first of all gospel thinking asks this is it good he says whatever is true that word could also be translated as, as good the very nature of god is good in all of his attributes he is good and he's calling us upon calling upon us here to to think on to meditate upon to be consumed with thoughts of that which is good and true and right second grid, is it objective? He says, if anything is true, all truth is God's truth. Ultimately, the greatest truth is found in the Word of God. And this is objective truth that is not dependent upon how I feel about it. See, so much of what's being laid before us is so tinged with emotion that my reception of it depends on how I feel about it. So I'll choose to watch one news station over the other one because they say things that go along with how I feel. I love the fact that God is not interested with putting forth truth that engages us on the level of how we feel about it. He says this is truth and he wants us to love the truth. He wants us to be consumed with the truth. But objective truth that's not dependent upon the subjective nature of our feelings, but is true because God has spoken it. Thirdly, gospel thinking asks is it sanctified? Is this moving us toward the holiness to which God has called us or is it continuing to infect us with the sin and death of this world, with, the, with that, cancerous, that cancerous substance that, that brings us not from glory to glory but from death to death. As, as the Lord said to Adam, and dying you shall die. And there is so much mess in our culture right now that's leading us from death to death while God would lead us from glory to death to glory, sanctifying us by the word of his truth? Is it leading us to holiness or in the other direction? Fourth, gospel thinking asks, is it praiseworthy? Can I commend this to another? Does this line up with the Word of God. Is this something that I could recommend to another brother and sister in Christ that would encourage them in their faith? That would help them in their sanctification? Or is it just going to stir them up in ways that are not spiritually healthy? Is it praiseworthy? Next, gospel thinking asks, is it excellent? Remember what Jesus It says about Jesus on the night that he was betrayed by Judas. It says that he sought to show them a more excellent way. And then he bowed before them and washed their feet. And that was a picture of the most excellent love that would be further and more fully demonstrated when he not just laid down in his humility, but he he laid down his life on the cross for us and for us to be able to consider that which is excellent that which is walking in that way of excellent love that jesus demonstrated for us there's a lot more i'd like to say about that but for the sake of time let me show you the last piece of it gospel thinking also asks this is it lovely is it beautiful Is it something that draws not just the eye, but the heart to the praise of God? Is this this thing that happens in the heart of man when we see a beautiful sunset or a beautiful sunrise? When we go out and observe the glory of God in creation? Or when we see the demonstration of beauty in a wonderful work of art or a magnificent building? When we hear a a song that stirs our affections toward the Lord and toward one another. That's what's lovely. It's what's beautiful. It's what draws out the heart of man to give praise to God. And and as we consider these things, I want to ask us, church, is this the grid by which we are judging that which we think upon and participate in in these days? This is not the grid of the world. This is not the grid of the world. This is God's grid for us that would enable us to think gospel thoughts. But I want us to be reminded of this. That it will be gospel thinking that will produce gospel living. We cannot hope to live out the gospel in our lives if our minds are consumed with worldly things. Here's where I think one of the primary applications is of, of this for the church today. In social media. Now I believe that social media by and large is a, is a neutral a platform that, that ha- can be a gift of God that we can use to, to reach others in the gospel and to encourage one another. But we know very much so in these days it has not been that. It has been a place of stirring. It has been a place of anger and division and worry and judgmentalness and fearfulness. We could go on and on with the list of how social media has impacted us. But I want you to think about that grid for a moment, that gospel grid, and and apply that to the area of social media. And I want you to consider two things. First of all, I want you to consider what you are allowing into your mind through social media and let that be the grid for determining, Am going to read this post? Am I going to go to this article? Let that be the grid. Not does it agree with my political presuppositions. Set that aside for a moment. Not does this author saying what I want to hear. Again, does the Bible not warn us about itching ears? Those who just want to hear what they want to hear. Itching ears are being scratched in our day. I pray that we are not the ones that have them. But not just to consider what we read, what we look at, that lens, but again to consider very carefully what we then are putting forward for others. I want you to consider this week those that are on social media engaged in any way whatsoever I want you to consider very, very carefully what you're posting in these days. And if your only measurement for whether you will forward something or post something or, or tweet something or whatever you're going to do with that something, if your only measurement is it, does it agree with my views, does it perpetuate my mindset, I want to urge you, don't post it. Now, I know how quickly artists say, "Well, well, it's true, so the truth needs to get out there." But it's more than just what's true. Is it honorable? Is it just? Is it pure? Is it lovely, excellent? worthy of praise? Is it stirring us up to love Jesus more and to share His gospel with greater boldness and fervency? Or is it just stirring us up to more anger and worry and fear? See, we've got to set the bar here, church. We've got to set the bar because the world doesn't know about this gospel grid. We need to go and we need to tell them about the Savior who died for them so that they could live in a different way, free from worry and fear and anger and anxiety. But, but we need to recognize this is not the grid of the world. And so often we are walking according to the world's grid in what we read and what we post. And we need to be grieved over that to the point of repenting. And so I'll leave you with this thought. It's from Philippians 2.5. The call upon us, really at the core of this book, is this very truth. This call to have this mind among ourselves. Again, this is a call to y'all here. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We don't have to go after this thing. It's all, If you belong to Christ, the mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ, the love of Christ has already been given over to you. The call is walk in it. Live in it. Post as a result of it, or don't post because of it. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And so here's what I'd like us to do. We we did this last week, and I want to do this again today. I, I do believe the call upon the church in these days has so much to do with prayer. More than we need to go out with picket signs, we need to hit our knees in prayer. And ask God to do what only God can do. COVID-19 will be removed when God is ready for it to be removed. Until then, he is doing something with this disease that we need to embrace. And yes, I said embrace. The outcome of the election in November of this year will be determined by Almighty God. He is the one who puts authorities in place. He raises up kings, and he tears down kings. That doesn't mean that we're absolved of our duty to do what we as American citizens have been given the freedom to do, to go and to vote, and all those kinds of things. It just simply means, in the mind of God, the election of November has already been decided. And we as the people of God need not be anxious or upset or angered over that. God knows what he's doing call upon our lives is to pray, God, whoever ends up as our next president, may we continue to be faithful as your people to do what you've called us to do and to be who you've called us to be. So I want to lead us in a time of prayer again this morning. In just a moment, there'll be just a quiet song that'll be playing in the background, and you're going to see a, a series of prayer points that are going to up here on the screen every time there's something new on the screen there's going to be a little chime sound you'll hear that and that'll just signal you not to stop praying but just that there's something new to pray for on the screen if you're in the midst of a prayer just continue praying who cares what's on the screen but but this will just kind of spur us on and, and i want us to pray for some very particular things again today not just general prayers but some very specific things And so we'll begin this in just a moment. I want to lead us in a prayer as we start this. I want to encourage you to get together with your family unit as you're already seated that way, most of you, and with those that you're comfortable getting in in close proximity and praying with. If you want to pray on your own, that is totally fine. If you want to come here to the altar and pray, that's fine as well. But I want to encourage you to pray. And and I do want to encourage you to pray with one another. So let's gather together as family units and, and friends that feel comfortable with that. And let's pray. How do we as the people of God come before God's throne of grace with confidence in these days? We look to the cross and we remind ourselves the greatest battle has already been won. We look to the empty tomb and remind ourselves that resurrection life has already been given. We look to the call of God upon our lives to stand firm and and recognize that the the foundation has already been set and the ways in which we will stand firm have already been laid out for us. And we ask God for the courage and the grace to walk in what he has already laid out for us. Let's pray together and then I'll invite you to join together in groups. Spend about four or five minutes in prayer. Again, listen for the chime. You'll hear some things to pray for. Father, thank you. Thank you that we do not have to be a divided people. That by your grace, we've been called out of the darkness of division, of drawing dividing lines, of race, or socioeconomic class, political view. All the lines that our culture seems so intent on defining more and more. That we are all one in Christ Jesus. The dividing wall that stood between us and you has been torn down. And not only that dividing wall, but the dividing walls that would stand between us and others have been torn down in Christ. And there is a oneness and a unity that will not be found anywhere else. We praise you, Father, that the the very foundation of our unity is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the perfect Son of God stepped out of heaven and stepped into the world and lived the perfect life that none of us could live and then died in our place on a criminal's cross. Though He had no sin of His own, He became sin for us so that through Him we might become the very righteousness of God. And resurrection life has been attained for us. And we will go from glory to glory. Because you have said it is so. And so, Father, lead us in this time of prayer. May we devote ourselves to prayer in these days, being watchful and thankful. In Jesus' name, amen.